Hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Tim. And this is Chris. This is Adam. And today we're going to give our hot take review on the game we just finished playing, Age of Galaxy. But before we do, I have some poll results. We asked a question on Twitter this week, which I always do. So if you don't follow us on Twitter, you should at BG underscore hot takes. And the question I asked, have you ever won a game by so much or in such a way that you felt bad about it? This question was actually recommended to me by one of our listeners at BP Symington. Uh, he's also a uh, running board gamer, I think, on Instagram. So nice gentleman out of LA that uh, chats with us occasionally. And uh, he had just mentioned that he had a, a bad uh, game session where he just won so bad that it, you know, it just it felt bad. Like some of the other players were frustrated and disappointed by it. So I thought that was an interesting question. I think that's something that can come up. How did you guys answer this? I don't think I understood the the options again, Tim. I was like, I don't understand this question. I don't understand what your answers mean. It was like, yes, if you've won a game by more than you felt bad and it's okay. And then the second option was like, never, never try to win. I never try to win by a lot. Wait, okay, hold on. Let me <laughs> let me reread this. This is not this is not complicated. Have you ever won a game by so more so much or in such a way that you felt bad about it? That's already two questions. Okay, but keep going. Never I play to win. <laughs> no, I would never. Meaning like you know, like Adam, I think so. This is a discussion, obviously, because apparently you've never felt bad about a win that you've had because you crushed somebody or because you you know played you know played meanly like Chris does all the time with me um, and and won in that way with somebody who hadn't played a game before. Um, so those are the types of things that could happen. But the the options I gave: never I play to win. No, I would never. Number three, yes, and I regret it. And number three, yes, but I do it again. So they they felt bad about doing it, but they they do the same thing over again. So those are the four options. Does that make more sense to you? Do you have do you have a, a a slight comprehension of what we're talking about now? I don't. I still am like confused about those answers. Any, let me explain to you how I understand. <laughs> when I go to play a board game, I assume that everybody that's participating in that game is okay with kicking everybody's butt and having their own butt kicked. Otherwise, don't come to the table if if you can't accept one of those outcomes or somewhere in the middle of those outcomes. So that's the assumption I come to the board game table with. Rarely does it happen where I win, and rarely does it happen where I win by a landslide. And I can't remember a time where I have ever won by a landslide. Maybe you guys can remember some, oh, Adam, that time you won this such and such game and you kicked our butts, I'd felt horrible about it i nothing stands out to me like i can't remember anything that's ever any time that's ever happened and i think i would just try to if i saw that situation arising i'd be like "Uh oh i better pump the brakes here and i better do something try to explore some new strategy or some little edge case where i'm not gonna eliminate the fun for everybody that has decided to join me in a board game so i try to mitigate if i saw it i try to be gracious like oh my gosh i can't believe I stumbled into this amazing combo. I'm sorry, guys. I, you know, I don't know what's happening. I'm not controlling it. I, you know, it's out of my, it's out of my hands, guys. Sorry, I'm kicking your butt so bad. So I try to do something like that to make it an enjoyable situation. Um, and that's the best I can answer this question. And, and I'm just going to ignore all the options you listed. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Ignore the options. No, so I got two questions. Well, first of all, one is that there was a time when you beat us really bad at a game, and I have a memory of it. And you've come back later and said, "Man, I feel bad about that." 
and that was Cubitos. The first time we played Cubitos, oh, yeah. we're in our second time. We're in Palm Springs, and you pull out this cat strategy with whatever layout of cards we had. You just pulled all these cat dice, and you were just like getting like fifteen actions around, and we're just kind of stumbling around doing nothing. And you you were the clear winner the whole game, and you're like, oh man, I feel like I broke the game. And so you felt bad about that. So that's kind of what we're talking about here. And let me ask you, here's another scenario that could come up. Like, have you ever been teaching your daughter a game, had a little bit of strategy in it, and you're playing your best because that's what you do. Because when everyone comes to the table, everyone understands that you're all going to play your best and just you could get crushed. And then did you feel bad that you destroyed your daughter and she felt hopeless at that win? I did not feel bad. I crushed my daughter every time. I hope she has a miserable experience. She should learn what it feels like to be in last place. No, Tim. Of course, if I'm playing my daughter, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go easy. That's, you gotta keep her involved okay. and make them. You gotta inspire them to want to play games and make it a fun experience. I think that's what they're looking for first. You know, they don't have the masterful strategies down that some of these other seven year olds have. My my daughters. Well, doing. nicely done there, Tim. You got them on the cross examination. Uh, Adam was. Uh... Hoist by his own petard. Uh, I think the more relevant question for me is, have you ever lost a game by so much that it made you feel bad? And the answer to that is yes. Uh, no, I, the answer for me generally is no. I, now I will say there's one caveat, which I'll come back to. But no, I figure screw you. I mean, if I'm playing with gamers, you know, bring it. If, you, if you're getting beat that bad, then you need to have read the rules first or bring your A game or whatever. I mean, I don't really say that. I mean, I, I try to be thoughtful. But, but you know, no. I mean, if we're playing with gamers, gamers know the deal. You're playing hard. Hopefully you win. I want to revel in the times when I win by a whole lot. Now, coming back to that caveat, it's the killing your seven-year-old daughter question. Like, no, of course I don't want to beat somebody to death if they're not a serious gamer. If I'm introducing my wife to a game or if I'm playing with my son or anybody that's not a real, you know, hardcore serious gamer, I want them to have fun. And part of having fun is the ability to feel like you're being competitive. And if I'm just wailing on them, then I'm pretty confident they're probably not going to be having fun. Yeah, I think, you know, we're probably pretty aligned here. I mean, when I'm playing with you guys, I never feel bad if I manage to win by a large amount. And it doesn't happen that often. We're all pretty evenly matched, I think. And the way we play games is we kind of plan, hey, we're going to sit down and play this game. Most of the time, we all learn it in advance. Even if one of us has played more, like last week is a great example. Chris had played a few times a barrage. Adam played a couple times. It was my first game, and I definitely got crushed in that game. But that's okay. It didn't bother me that I got crushed. It bothered me how, you know, how bad the game let that happen to me. At the, in that first play, I think it's an amazing game. But the fact that, you know, you guys did your best and, and beat me hard, I think that's cool. And, and you shouldn't feel bad about that. Chris, I want to know, what was the game that you got beat so bad that you felt bad about it? Oh, I mean, do you want me to list them? I mean, <laughs> anyone, anyone. Well, let me see. How many today? Let's see. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I mean, I can't remember any specific instances off the top of my head. But yeah, I mean, I've had times when I got my butt killed and I'm like, ah, oh, that's okay. So I've never, I don't think I've ever felt bad about doing poorly at a game from losing by a lot of points. The exploration is always fun. I, again, I sometimes feel bad about the way a game went and how things got taken away from me that I worked out for. Right? I have I get bad feelings in games for sure, but it's not because of the the beating. But I, I've had a couple moments where I didn't feel good about a win. And I try to mitigate them. Like I think about these a lot more. But when I was first getting into the hobby, I think back in my old Magic the Gathering days, you know, sitting down and trying to teach somebody new magic and then 
bam, 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 I did all this stuff. And they're like, what just happened? And I just got destroyed. Well, now they'll never play magic with me again. No, that was stupid. So I felt bad about that. And my daughter is a great example, right? I grew up with a dad. We played a lot of games when I was growing up. And he, as far as I know, he never let us win. Like my dad won almost every game. Not like he crushed us, but it was hard, but I, I developed some character because, it, you know, I always loved to play games and I loved it when I became an adult and I started to be competitive with them. And, you know, now him and I have a very competitive, like it's always, you know, it's very tense about who's going to win the game. So I never felt bad about that as a kid. So when I play with my my daughter, who's been growing up and I've been introducing her to games, I generally took the same stance. I didn't destroy her. I tried to help her. I tried to, sometimes I'll kind of play an easier strategy to make sure that she has a shot, but I still play the game. And I don't know that I should have. And so I kind of regret not just throwing games more often as she was growing up and getting into it. Because she's not really into gaming at all now. She's 10 years old. And I don't know if it's because she'd never felt like she got to win enough. Um, or maybe she, it's just not her thing. That could be the, the thing as well. But I do wonder sometimes if I'd kind of let her win, let her feel like she ha- you know, was more competitive, if it wouldn't have gotten more exciting for her. The one other thing I think can happen sometimes for me is like, you play a game that you know really well, and then you sit down and you teach somebody, um, you know, even other gamers, I think it's important to at least give them some pointers like, hey, this is something you probably should focus on. Um, and then those are the times too, when I'll usually try a new strategy, I will not play my hardest, right? And so I think that's kind of where I'm in the, I would never camp, like I'm never going to sit there and just try to destroy somebody. I've heard stories of that happening where somebody sits down, teaches people a new game, and then just destroys them with the craziest combo of stuff. I would feel terrible if that happened, but I think it's an important thing to watch for. I'm interested to see the progress of the psychological damage you've done to your daughter as she grows up. I think that'll be interesting to witness. And then going back, think about when you were a kid. I remember playing, I I don't know what game it was, whether it was Checkers with my mom or Hungry Hungry Hippos or... Mr. Big Mouth, where the guy's spinning around, you're trying to flick little chips in his face. Having that move where your mom set you up to do like a triple jump with your king and take five, you get so pumped up. Think about those moments when you look back, you're like, my mom definitely set that up so I could get this triple jump and this thrill of this cool move when I was playing this game. And so you got to let the kids experience that joy and see what kind of thrill there can be in board games. So those moments I want to pass on to like my daughter. I think it's an interesting point about what's the best way to foster joy in like being together and hanging out, uh, you know, in your kids as they're developing, as their brains are developing. I think that's just an interesting point. I know we kind of are poking a little fun at it, but that's cool to think about for me. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can think about the, biggest moments that I've had, the most fun moments I've had playing games with my son, and every single one of them involves him like pumping his fist in the air because he just did something great or just got me in a game, and none of them involve me beating him. So I'm a firm believer that just like education, you know, if you want someone to love something, you want to get them into it in a fun way. And most kids aren't going to have a fun time getting beat down. They're going to enjoy, you know, those opportunities to win, kind of like what Adam was saying. And, you know, it's not that different, I guess. You know, I said a lot of stuff before about, you know, beating up on other real gamers. But in reality, if I'm playing a game with somebody for the first time, I kind of do the same thing that you were talking about, Tim. I go and say, okay. 
as I'm taking my turn, I'm saying, okay, well, here, let me explain to you what I'm doing. So I'm thinking through this, and this move makes sense to me right now because I'm going to be focusing on this because this is a big point scoring mechanism later on in the game. So think about that, et cetera, et cetera. And I appreciate that when people do it with me. And I, I think it's the same thing when you're when I'm doing it with somebody else. Yeah. Oh, yeah, agreed. All right. Well, cool. So there's a lot of comments on this uh, on this poll on Twitter. So again, if you don't follow us, find us on BG underscore hot takes on Twitter and go out there, leave some comments or at least read the comments. There's always interesting conversation. I'm just going to read one comment on the poll this week because I think a lot of the answers were very similar to what we just discussed. But there was one story that I liked a lot. Cheap Card Gamer said, me and my friend used to be MTG regulars. That's Magic the Gathering. Inevitably, there would often be a kid there for the first time getting stomped. We would always bring shoeboxes filled with our duplicate common uncommons and give them away to those kids. After the game, we'd look through all the cards and try to tweak their deck a bit and teach them some techniques. It was always my favorite thing, seeing a kid go from looking defeated to being very happy and excited to come back again. That's such a great way to introduce people into the hobby. All of these things that we're talking about, a lot of what makes this fun is when you can get to that competitive state like we are today, where we can just sit down and play a game and have fun and rib people. But if you want people to get there, you got to give them a chance to, you know, get to the level of experience you are and and understand, um, you know, how the game flows. And so helping them through those early games and not just crushing them is probably going to be a big point. And I think this whole conversation just reminds me of all the ways I'm a terrible father. So thanks, <laughs> Right. Well, everybody can get a little better at everything. And that's tr- definitely true <laughs> for me. <laughs> and wait, are you, ta- are you talking about in playing games or about Tim's parenting? <laughs> just in life, um, but mostly Tim's parenting. <laughs> so, I mean, it's definitely true for me. And that story was just an absolute thrill. I love that comment too. I read that and I was like, oh man, mm-hmm. you know, how many times have you felt dejected after whatever, you know? And then having somebody come over to you and be like, how you doing? Let me show you a couple of things. And, and it's, you know, it's from a sincere place and it's not belittling. It's just like, dude, we could be friends and hang out and let me show you these cool things about this hobby or this thing or whatever. And just people being good to other humans. That's just fantastic to hear. And I think it's, it's rarity. It takes a little effort and a little habit building to get that into part of your life. And I was, that was just commendable. Agreed. All right. Well, that will wrap up that chat. Let's jump into a description of Age of Galaxy. In Age of Galaxy, one to four players attempt to form the most prestigious alliance of alien races. Players are initially dealt a hand of seven cards, which represent these alien races, and choose one to play as a first member of their alliance. During the course of play, up to two more cards are chosen to add to the alliance. These alliance cards provide many things, including bonuses to the standard actions, rare technologies, one-time bonuses, ships, and money, and each comes with a predominant ideology. If you're following my math, the four remaining cards can be used for colonization capability, typically small but important instant resources, or used to shift the Alliance's overarching ideology, which pivot in-game scoring bonuses. In addition to the multi-use cards, players have nine standard actions at their disposal, as well as three trade actions. Each turn, players first produce resources, collectively explore the galaxy, and begin to plot. Next. Players take one of typically three action cubes and select one of the nine actions, ranging from colonizing suitable planets, constructing ships, trading, researching, nominating, and a few other niche actions. Once all players exhaust all action cubes, the war phase begins. The player with the most ships may colonize an unprotected planet and receives a point and, depending on player count, bonuses are also awarded for second and third place. 
players then discard their ships down to the number of shields they produce. Finally, if a trade card has filled with action cubes, these are returned to players, giving them extra actions for the next round, up to a maximum of six action cubes. Repeat this process five times, count in-game bonuses, and the player with the most prestige wins the game. Age of Galaxy was designed by Jeffrey CCH, published by Ice Makes Games in 2022, and includes art by Sam Horowitz. All right, welcome back. So let's talk about the gameplay and mechanisms of Age of Galaxy. And I'm going to start here tonight. Before we get into a discussion of the game Age of Galaxy, I want to talk about the name Age of Galaxy. That's coming in theme and production, dude. All right. Sorry, you stole my thunder. Totally going to talk about Age of Galaxy. Please proceed. <laughs> All right, I'm going to start here tonight. And I want to talk about the central like tenant of this game. Now, this game has a lot going on for what is a pretty streamlined game. But the best part is this hand of seven cards you start with at the beginning of the game. It's so fun. You pick a civilization you're going to be, and that gives you your asymmetric starting powers. It usually gives you, you know, what type of planet you can colonize, and it gives you some ongoing ability or some immediate ability or some extra resources. They're also very different. Adam, how many cards are in this deck? I, I think there's around 50. I'm not sure, Tim, exactly. I'll go. I'll check on that. Okay. I'll check on that. Okay, cool. So so let's say there's 50 cards. In a three-player game, you each start with seven cards, seven different and very unique cards. Not a single one of these felt the same to me in any way. Um, and I just love that. And, you know, so you only have seven cards over the course of the game. One of them you start with. You can play up to two more as races that are in your a little allegiance there. So you get all their abilities. But then you can also use them to discard and get one-time abilities for them. Or you can use them for their uh, kind of overarching, whatever it's called, like kind of your theme, your, your endgame scoring bonus. And I love that. This just in, Tim. There are 40 unique factions. Nice. Okay, 40. There's so much fun variety here. Now, we played one game tonight on Tabletop Simulator. This is mine and Chris's first game. Adam's played a couple games prior to this with the regular production of it. But um, that, that really stood out to me. Every one of our civilizations was very different. In this particular game, we didn't draft the cards. We all just got handed seven cards and had different things to go for. And it was kind of interesting because like Steve ended up with three civilizations or three cards that seemed to work really well together over his, the course of his game. Mine weren't quite that that much but i remember looking at my hand at the first, at the beginning of the game and i was like pretty quickly like okay these two guys might work together so i'm going to start with them and then i got to find one more that's going to kind of supplement it and so that was fun and chris the whole time he's like oh my cards suck they don't do anything like none of these cards would have done anything for me except then we got to the end of the game and we're kind of looking at chris's other cards that he didn't end up playing and we're like oh chris you could have used that one that, that would have been a great ability for you. you should have played that one earlier in the game that would have been a great one to start with so all these game, all these cards have some really interesting things to go on, uh, to you know that happen with them, and I think that that's gonna. It, it was it was so cool to see those cards make our civilizations develop completely different, our strategies develop differently, our um, you know our choices over the game. Like yeah, I, I could go into so many points here. I'll probably bring this back up, but I just think that that card play, those those seven cards you start with and that you use over the course of the game, what a fun way to add just a lot of variety in this game. Um, from from that simple mechanism so yeah i want to make a point here this game has a lot of mechanisms and it does a lot of things but it i think it does everything in just small doses the right amount of small doses for everything in this game so you got a little tiny tech track and a little tiny production track and a little tiny galaxy and a little tiny score tracker so there's just so many elements of the game that are just 
tiny, including the actual physical production of the game as well. So I think that's just kind of a neat, I don't know, overarching theme for this game. But the cards, Tim, are amazing. I think that, for me, is one of the stars of the show. They're these multi-use cards, right? So you can use them to get your ships and your money right away. You can discard them for a quick buck, a quick resource, or you can make them your over, your overarching technology. So you're, And it's just like a little tableau. That's another little thing. It's just as a little tableau, a little engine that you're building as well. And all of it fits so well together. But yeah, just to echo your sentiment about the cards, they are so cool. And to get into this uh, drafting variant, I think that's on the uh, horizon for us. You're going to be able to build and see all these very nice combinations and pre-plan sort of how you want to build your engine right away. I think that's kind of a neat thing and maybe a little novel. Maybe it gives me a little bit of La Granja, another game we're playing right now, a little bit of vibes of those multi-use cards. So I think it's interesting. Yeah, lots of fun with the multi-use cards here. And going back to Tim's point about the asymmetric powers, I mean, we've all played games where you start with an asymmetric power. I mean, Barrage, the game we played last week, was a good example of that. You had two asymmetric powers. You had one with your country, and you had one with your executive officer. The thing I like about Age of Galaxy is the fact that you do get to make those decisions as you progress through the game. I mean, we've all had those games where you have like one civilization. It's like, okay, now I'm locked in and try to maximize it. This one, you have multiple races within your civilization potentially. And you might get two or three rounds in and be like, you know, maybe I don't want to go that route. That's not going to be the biggest point getter for me. I want to go in this other direction. And this other alien race is the better way to get there. So I like the fact that you could have an adaptable strategy that let you select your course of asymmetry as you were progressing through the game. That and just I love the asymmetrical cards too, that you each one of these could be either part of your civilization or it could be could be that instant uh, instant benefit. That was really cool. One other mechanism I thought was pretty neat. There's this this action you can take in the game called trade. It doesn't seem that exciting. You know, basically everybody starts with three tokens at the beginning of the round. So that means you're going to get three actions per round. It's played over 15, over five rounds. So you're going to end up with 15 actions in the game normally. But this trade action basically lets you spend your action and take that turn to, there's always three random trade cards that get set up at the top of the game with on a four player game, five spaces available on them. So I could spend my action, put it in one of those five spaces, fill it in and get whatever the benefit is. It might let me trade some income for points or it might let me trade money for research or there's several different resources you can kind of swap around. It's a decent ability. What's really neat about this though, is that once you fill up those tracks, again, in a four player game, it's five spots in the track. At the end of that round, that card gets flipped over and all the tokens that filled up that track go back to the people who spent them and they get to add those to the tokens that they would have had that turn. And so you can sometimes have this explosive round where, hey, I committed to that trade tack, that, that trade track, and now I've got four or five or six tokens that I get to use this turn. That's that's you know more actions than anybody else has. Get to do all kinds of cool stuff. So that was pretty neat, pretty neat mechanism. I like that it's variable. It's going to change a little bit. The economy changes a little bit. Like this time I was trying to do some research or whatever it is, get knowledge, and I couldn't find good places to do it. So I was kind of taking subpar actions just so I could get knowledge to convert them to relics, which I wanted to do. 
But if the game had been set up a little bit different, there would have been a trade track where I could have traded in some money for knowledge, which would have been huge for me this turn. So it's cool that it, it varies. It means that like the same, you know, kind of the same strategy isn't going to work every t- every turn. But I, but I thought that was pretty cool. That was a neat little little trick that they pulled. Isn't that great? That mechanic, that's something I wanted to talk about last week and I totally botched it up. But you nailed it, Tim. That ability to fill up those cards, you're going to get those extra actions later in the game by round four and probably round five any other than that would be kind of tough to get those extra actions unless you're really manipulating it and going after it. but you can kind of time when you want to have these extra action which adds to the whole arc of the game later in the game you're going to potentially have more stuff to do and be getting more actions right so it's it's a really neat nifty little mechanism yeah, that market was pretty cool. But I want to change tracks here a little bit and talk about a mechanism that I didn't like in this game. And that was the war phase, which managed to be simultaneously uninteresting and confusing. I still don't really understand exactly how this is supposed to work. I think it's something like you have a bunch of ships which don't fight anything, but you need to have shields to protect your ships and your ships protect your planets but nobody's killing your planets or your ships, except they all die at the end. And one person gets an opportunity to take over a planet, but only one person. I, I'm so confused by the by the war phase of this game that I just don't even know what to make of it. Adam, please help me here. Well, hold on. It's not Adam's turn. Let me jump in here. So, <laughs> so first of all, Chris, I agree with you on one thing, is that it is a little bit convoluted. It was on a rules read and the first time I watched it, but after one round, as anybody would playing Age of Galaxy, you should have a full grasp on how this works. And the way it works, and this is actually pretty cool, is that when you colonize planets or populate planets, then you have to protect those planets. So if you want to protect them, you have to build ships to protect them. If you have one ship for every planet that you've colonized, your, your planets are safe. They're protected. They're, they're considered protected, so they can't be taken over. But if your ships don't have shields, then they could crash and burn due to radiation, over-radiation. And so you also have to build up shields with your technology to protect your ships. So that's pretty cool. And it's kind of a little bit of an area control thing, like a, like a majority rules thing, where whoever has the most ships at the end of that round is going to get some extra bonuses, and it's going to go down from there depending on how many players there are. I actually thought that was, this was a really great and interesting way to use... Like, there isn't combat. There's no dice rolling. There's no Nobody's going to take crap from me. I know that I have a risk of losing one colonized planet at the end of the round from the, the major warlord. If I'm in the lead, they, they or I leave myself with an uncolonized or an unprotected planet, nobody else does, somebody's going to take it from me. So I've got a risk there. But do I want to spend all those actions to build up ships to protect that? You know what? My game tonight, I basically never had more than two ships. Most of the game, I had one ship. And it was so cool that I could kind of focus on my other strategies and not worry about that. You guys got other bonuses for having lots of ships. You got... You want, I, got, I lost one on Protected Planet from it, but it was pretty neat. I, I built a technology that protected some of my planets without ships. I thought it was a really cool system, a little convoluted at a first glance, but pretty simple and straightforward to follow from there. And I liked that it did not lead to big losses. You know, I built up my thing. You, it's like Barrage, right? I, I didn't have to go and build up my thing, and then somebody just takes it from me. They just steal it from me. It wasn't like that. There was competition. You had to pay attention to what other people were doing. But I could still do my thing and not completely lose my game because of what somebody else did. Yeah, I like the, if you know, in quotes, the combat here. 
I think it's amazing and streamlined and just clever. Like if you want to go out and try to get this overlord and get yourself a free call and you can't, and there's just enough potential bite there. Oh my gosh, Tim and Steve left their planets unprotected. I can swoop in with my ship and knock down this double-decker planet, take out two points from them. Or I can see that Tim really wants to colonize this planet next round. I'm going to put my ship right there, and now that's mine. There's nothing he can do about it. So, yeah, Chris, it's ships protect your planets, shields protect your ships. That's it. That's all you got to know. So that's how it works, man. Clearly, I'm the outlier here. So, t- Tim, right, right after I said I have no idea how the combat worked, Tim said, well, anybody who's played a round of this would understand. So, so, so I, okay, I, I, I get what you're saying. And I guess I was being a little hyperbolic about I was completely confused by it. How dare you? It was more like it was a little bit too, um, honestly, to me, it felt a lot more like an accounting exercise than it did about combat. I mean, we've talked about combat mechanisms about a half dozen, probably five dozen times and all the different mechanisms we have for combat, I have to say that this is probably one of my least favorite. Listen, Chris, I can I can completely understand that. And if you're in there for the excitement, for the big, you know, exciting movements of a combat, like, it's not going to come from this. But I still found it good tension. You know, you only have the three actions per turn. Do you spend them building up your ships? Do you spend them building up your defenses? That was a tough choice, and I did that some in the early game, and I felt like I was sacrificing other things, but it's important you have to do that if other people are. So there's a little bit of an arms race, like who else is building ships? And if I'm not last in player order, and if I don't build ships now and they do, they're going to get the extra benefit. But do they give up their other actions to do it? I thought it was a really interesting, intense choice. But also, this is my kind of game. This is a Euro combat mechanism, right? This is a this is a way where you're really thinking of these ships as resources, and you're thinking of the shields as resources. And it's like a, to me, like I thought of it as like this is a feeding your people mechanism, right? This is like a hey, I didn't I didn't create enough corn this turn to feed my people, so I'm going to lose some people. That's what this mechanism was, but thematically integrated into this this space exploration game, and I thought it worked really well. I think that. It ties into kind of a catch-up mechanism, too. If you're the last in player order, you're going to be able to see how many ships other people have out there. You're going to be able to, if you set yourself up right, you're going to be able to buy more ships and become, they call it the overlord, the one who gets to swipe a free planet and get a few points from that. So I think it is just ties into the catch-up mechanism, too. If you're a little behind, you have the chance to see what's out there and manage your money and your resources a little smarter than whoever was right before you. So I think it ties into that too, which is, which is great. You know, I, as Tim, as you were talking, it occurred to me, maybe one of the things that I didn't love about it, one of the reasons I didn't love it was you were talking about an arms race. It never really felt too much like an arms race to me because at the end of each round, you're going to lose everything you don't have a shield for. So there's a lot of losing ships, at least for the first couple of rounds. There's a lot of losing ships because of not enough shields. And then to get ships out there, it's two bucks a ship. And pretty quickly, you build up your, your reserves of money. And so it kind of felt like every round, you could almost populate yourself out to your maximum of ships again if you wanted to. So I, and you could only have five ships out at a time. So if you have 10 bucks you can buy five ships every round. So it always felt like each round was a completely new start. It, didn't, it would have felt more satisfying to me if, for example, I could say, you know what, my strategy this game is I'm going to be the badass 
uh, race that's going to have you know really warlike, and I'm going to build up this huge fleet of ships, and that's going to be my thing. Instead, every round, I'm going back and saying, okay, I'm going to buy five more ships. I'm going to buy three more ships. And it just never never did it for me. But but see, you could do that, right? Because you could build up enough shields. You could focus on that technology track, build up the shields to do that. And your civilization, even, you had one civilization that would let you build an extra shield that nobody else could get to. So you did have that opportunity to pursue it. I don't know how successful it could be, but I totally get it, Chris. I mean, again, this is it's, it's not like super exciting combat moments. This is not an eclipse dice roll. Thank God for that. I'm so happy it wasn't that. This was... This fixed what Eclipse has a problem with, which is that huge dependency on luck in, you know, the actions you're taking. I think I think it was a very strategic game. You could basically plan what you wanted to do from the first when you looked at your hand of seven cards at the beginning of the game and pursue it. It, it wasn't always going to, you know, people are going to compete for it. They might take out the planets or colonize the planets you want first. They might take the, uh, you know, some of the other actions you want first. But this this game is a Euro 4X game and, and I like it for what it's doing. Now, what do you guys think about, I don't know if I want to ta- talk about the the tiny length of the playtime here or the tiny little tech tracks. Everything's so tiny. I don't know what to talk about first. Let's talk about the little tech tracks. What do you think about those? It's just, you have a, a right side, a middle side, and a left side, and there's only three steps up to get to the top of each of these. And once you get to the middle step, you can kind of go and research the adjacent tech track as well. So again, I thought those tech tracks were just succinct, had a little bit of punch to them, nothing crazy, but they were fun and you could help add to your tableau, get a quick little resource from them, and just a nice little punch. What do you guys think of those? I did like the tech track. And also one of the things that I thought was interesting was that some of the civilization cards actually had additional opportunities to build technologies. So for example, I doubled down on, I guess, a pretty ineffective uh, strategy of having all these cards that have these technologies and then building them out. And so some of them gave ongoing abilities. I thought those were really satisfying. There were also ones that didn't. They gave you like a one-time benefit that generally seemed a little less satisfying to me. Like, for example, I had one that cost me, you know, I had to spend, I forget what the little stars are, but it cost me a star and stars are pretty, you know, important. And it gave me a couple of dollars of income and um, I forget something else like one artifact or something like that. I, I wish in some of those situations that it was a little bit more of an ongoing benefit. But the ones that did have the ongoing benefits, I, I found fun and satisfying. Yeah. So I read the rule book on this and I looked at that tech track and I said, this is this is not going to be very interesting. It's going to get dull over games. But what was interesting, we played four players, right? And everybody ended up exploring different technologies and utilizing them in different ways. Like I went up the, I don't know what what it was, the uh, industrialization track. So I kind of protected all of my developed planets. That was awesome. I mean, I didn't have to develop on sh- focus on ships. You guys didn't do that. Other people focus on shields. Other people focus on other things. So for for a very tiny tech track, it did have some interesting choices. You're going to go different ways depending on your civilizations, and the civilizations, like Chris mentioned, do have some additional tech options you can pursue. So that was cool. Chris, that one that you were talking about, I think is an interesting choice because you're right, the exploration tokens are expensive. Maybe in this game, that wasn't the right move to go, but there could have been a trade action in another game where you would have gotten a lot of exploration tokens easy. And then that would have been a good, nice, easy trade in for an exploration token to get those benefits. Maybe you're having a hard time getting income. So I think the game is going to change game to game. Like the civilizations I built, I built up a ton of income. 
income wouldn't have been that valuable to me. Some of you guys were struggling with money over the course of the game. So income would be more valuable to you. So I think that's kind of the fun thing about the cards is that it is going to vary. Um, a one-time benefit is never as, as much fun to me as like an ongoing benefit. But, you know, I think sometimes it's going to be the right move. So going back to that, uh, those trade cards that you're talking about, Tim, did you notice one of the trade cards was lose three income and get yourself two mm-hmm. points? So yeah. so yeah, I should have been doing it earlier. Yeah, I should have been doing it earlier in the game. That my last two turns of the game, I almost used it, and then found just a couple other ways to find three points instead of two okay. points. So I didn't end up doing it. But yeah, de- definitely like a lot of cool ways to you know use the benefits of your civilization and and turn them in for other things. So now the play length here. I want to hear what you guys think about the variety of decisions and choices that you get to make in. We started at about seven and we finished at about, I don't know. We, I don't know. Let's say an hour. We played two hours. It took us about played, two hours. We yeah. played two hours, two hours, but this, this was an unusually, I mean, like, listen, tabletop simulator is always going to take longer. First play is always going to take a little bit mm-hmm. longer. This is an hour, hour 15, maybe hour 30 max. Once everybody knows how to play the game. Right. This is, it's, it's pretty yeah. quick. So I don't know for the, for me, the amount of decisions and choices and comboing up, you get to play the card choices and the engine building. I get a lot of, I don't know, almost like race for the galaxy, like Lagranja feelings from this game. I think it's going to come down to about an hour to do all this awesome stuff. What are you guys thoughts on that? Yeah. I I thought this game packed a lot, not only into a little box, but into a a little amount of time. I think one of the things that I found uh, problematic for me tonight was that it did go two hours and it doesn't feel like it's a two hour game. And I don't think it is a two hour game. I think it really is an hour long game. And so I'd be interested to get a second play where we understood a little bit better and we're able to move right along and to see how, and to see how that felt, because as it felt tonight, it started to drag for me a bit as we got about maybe halfway through it. But again, I don't think that would happen if we were playing it, you know, on our third game or fourth game or whatever. Yeah, I think the only problem there is, right, it's like the the turns are pretty quick. Like you do an action, you get the benefit. And so if you've planned by the time you get to your turn, it should be a very quick turn. And so where it would get frustrating is like everybody else has taken 10 minutes on their turn thinking about their action. Now, there's a lot of options. There's a lot of different things you can do, but they're not that complicated. So, you know, yes, I think that sometimes turns went a little long. I don't think it's a problem with the game. I think our I think our group AP'd it a little bit tonight when they shouldn't have. And I think with the second play, a lot of the decisions would make become a lot simpler. So the turns that are frustrating are the ones where you're like, I know exactly what I want to do the next three turns, but I got to wait a half an hour for everyone to finish their, their round. Generally, I didn't feel like it dragged even with that situation. Like, yeah, I wanted to get to my turn. I wanted to take it. It took me two seconds. I'm done. But I thought the game packed a lot in this little time period, even if it was a two-hour game. I thought there was a lot going on. Now, there is a lot of mechanisms in here, a lot of iconography you have to learn, a lot of options, a lot of actions you can take. And so when I first looked at the board and started watching a tutorial video of this game, I was like, "Uh, this is pretty convoluted. Nope, five minutes later, everything is very clear. So the game is streamlined. It's very simple. It's pretty sandboxy. There's a lot of different things you can do with with some very tight restrictions and, and kind of limitations about what you can do about them. And I think it all fits really well within the time frame. I'm I'm pretty impressed by what they did with this package, not only making it streamlined enough to keep it short, but also give you enough variety that might keep it interesting. Now, I want to talk about my one concern about it. Now, this is one play for me, right? And I don't know if this concern is going to hold up or not. And that is that I did feel like I looked at my seven cards at the beginning of the game. 
I kind of picked two of the three that I knew I was going to work with and maybe a third I'd kind of pursue, but I settled in on it by the end of the first round and I knew exactly what I wanted to do for the next 15 actions. Not, you know, like I, I evolved a little bit. I changed a little bit. That's okay though. I, I think it's okay. I think there are some games where that's what the game is all about. Like let's draft that, that game and then play it out and see if I get some wrenches thrown in the, in the works or if somebody beats me to it. And if you can get this game played in an hour, that's fun. It's fun to start that and see if I can just make this thing work out the way I think it's going to. I'm wondering if after many plays, if it would start to feel like, okay, it's already solved. I know what I'm going to do the rest of the game. And then taking the actions is not going to be as fun. It's undetermined whether that's a real problem or just a potential problem. I get that concern, Tim. That's totally valid. What I see from this game is you're going to get a little more familiar. You're going to discover some of those companies. It's going to be a discovery phase of, oh man, this card goes great with this card, goes great with this card. And now I'm going to focus on this action and ramp that up super quick and be able to just get this beast of an engine working in this specific strategy right off the bat. I think that's going to be fun to find those combinations. Now, are you going to be able to counter those when you see that, you know, maybe you have an amazing military engine going? Am I going to be able to do anything to keep you from scoring so many points with that? How am I going to counter? Are the cards going to work so they can counter each other in addition to building up your own engine i think that process of digging through these 40 unique factions is going to be a fun process for me and and learning what they can all do together i think that's going to be great but yeah i i see your concern there tim totally valid one thing we haven't talked about yet that i just wanted to touch on was the i forget what they call them overarching ideal or philosophies or ideals and that was a nice little piece of the game that i thought added a a little touch it was basically nothing more than end game scoring but there was i think five or six different icons that you could use and if you played because you play up to three civilizations on your civilization races within your civilization and each one of them has one of those emblems on it and whichever one you have the most of, that's the one you're going to score. And that gives you points for different things. It might give you points for the number of artifacts you have or points for every planet that you have that has a ship on it, those sorts of things. And you can switch that up as you go along. So I had a, I went into the game with a plan saying, I'm going to do the one with the ships on planets. By the end of the game, I had exactly one ship on a planet. So I'm like, okay, it's time to switch. But I could do that. I could do that by switching out my overarching philosophy ideal guy and i thought that was cool it was another opportunity to you know correct a a failing strategy and i thought that was that was kind of fun yeah very cool it was fun to try to find a a combo of the cards that you got in your hand that worked going towards one of those overarching strategies and see if you could match up the icons to make it work another cool choice in the game let's jump into the theme and production of age of galaxy and chris i'm gonna let you kick it off because i I think you got something important to say here. <laughs> so I want to start with the name of this game. I don't understand what they're talking about. So Age of Galaxy, I could say Age of Tim, and it probably means the age that Tim is right now. So are they saying this is something about the age of this particular galaxy that you're in? Or you could say that this is the Age of Ultron, it's all about this is when Ultron's really, I guess, strong. Is this a really strong galaxy at this time? Like, I really, I'm just, I'm 
really confused what the heck they're trying to say here. All right, Chris. So this is a terrible, terrible name. And I agree with you. If you hadn't brought this up, this would have been one of my first talking points. It's so generic and it's so meaningless. But I think I can help you understand this. So the designer of Age of Galaxy was also one of the designers of Age of Empire or the designer of so Age of Empire makes a little bit more sense, right? You're, you're talking about a civilization game that's based in a certain time period. It's when empires were starting to develop. Age of Galaxy makes absolutely no sense. So I think the designer or the publisher was trying to link the two games together in some way. And they, they did it in a terrible way. You know, listen, a 4X game is in a lot of ways a civilization building game. And Age of Empire is a civilization building game. They've kind of taken that and moved into a space theme. Now it's Age of Galaxy. Still terrible. It's generic. The game will probably not really be on the radar because of the name. But I think it's a, it's unfortunate. And Adam, do you do you agree? Do you disagree? What do you think about the name Age of Galaxy? I have to wholeheartedly agree with you guys. It's such a grammatically confusing phrase to say. Like, oh, guys, you want to play Age of Galaxy? What? What are you talking about? That's not even correct words do that okay let's play it so i mean if you can get past that little it's right it's such a little hurdle if it just had a nice name that flowed and people might be a little more willing instead people that's gonna catch in people's ear and be like uh you're playing a game that doesn't know proper grammar so maybe the game's not gonna be good hopefully people can get past that and give the game a chance but yeah i totally agree so going back to the actual physical production here i felt like this game, well, for one, I was super impressed at the size of the box for this game. <laughs> Adam actually picked up his copy and held it up for us to see, and it was about the size of one of his hands. I mean, I'm not sure how they managed to pack all that into there. Now, having said that, this is a production that I think was wholly undistinguished, with the exception of the cards. Because most of this game was a bunch of little chits. There's a little chit with a little green triangle on it. Another chit with a little purple box on it. And then, you know, the, the ships look like they might have been kind of cool. I couldn't really tell on Tabletop Simulator because all I was getting was these weird little circles, which apparently everybody else is actually seeing the ships. I was seeing weird little circles. But the cards, the cards shown, I thought they were fun and interesting. And the art was super novel ideas for the way that these different races looked. And I just enjoyed looking at every single one. In fact, I spent a fair amount of time just kind of scrolling over other people's boards just to look at their aliens. And it left me wondering why so many aliens just look so angry all the time. But other what? Other than that, very cool. Yeah. So Chris, I agree with you on the the card art. I thought it was great. It was super fun. The, the, the aliens all had a nice variety. They told a little story with their names and with their abilities and we got some. We got angry at some of the aliens because their stupid abilities and how mean they were. But then we looked at their pictures and we're like, "Yeah, that guy looks smug. He looks like the type of alien that would do that." So it was fun. These these aliens told a story. So I like the art. Now I'm of two minds of the production. So this game is very much falling in line with the Scott Alms series of games, the Tiny Epic series. Tiny Tiny Epic Galaxies being the first of them and the only one that I personally played. And that there are these tiny little boxes that are probably six inches by four inches and maybe an inch deep or something like that, inch and a half deep. So they're tiny boxes. You got this game in there. And as we're 
you know, kind of put setting this game up and pulling the components out and, and looking at everything that's out there, my first thought is like, this game deserves a full-size production. Like there's enough stuff going on in the central board that it deserves a main board. It feels like I'm giving up. I'm sacrificing for playing this little tiny game with these little tiny chits and these little cards. I got to read the tiny text on them, all of that stuff. I kind of stand by that. I think that I would have enjoyed the game more if it was a full-size production of a game. I think the game deserves it. Even if it has a short and streamlined playtime, it still would be a great fit as, as a full-size normal board game. On the other hand, the other thing I walked away from tonight was saying like, this game was really fun. It was brisk. It was quick. I wonder what this costs. Now, if this game costs 40 or $50, I probably wouldn't pick it up. Not immediately anyway. I'd like to play it a little bit more. I'd like to play Adam's copy when we get together, you know, at our next local con. But at the size of this box, I bet this game is 20 to $30. At 20 to $30, this game is a no-brainer for me to pick up, even if just to try the solo mode a couple times and you know, play it play it when we got an hour, when I got an hour with somebody to just like, hey, let's drop out an hour game on this. So there's a trade-off between size and production cost. And I think for the size of this box, they did a pretty amazing job with it. I mean, not only do you have like little miniature sculpts for the ships, even the base box, even though the sculpts are all the same, they're nice little plastic miniatures. Um, all the boards, the graphic design on all of it is pretty readable. It's pretty easy to use. The variability in the galaxy as it develops all comes from it being a card-based system, which may be one of the other reasons they wanted to do that. I'm sure you could do that in other ways like Gaia Project. You could have big hex tiles or big square tiles or something, but that raises the production cost. It raises the, everything about it. So I think that somebody had a vision here and they said, you know, what's the right decision? They probably made the right decision for this game. Now, if they'd given it a better name, they could have probably sold it for more money. But with that name, they probably made the right decision, put the right price point on it. I'm, I'm kind of kidding there. But no, I think that I think the game works in the size of the box. I think it may be forgotten because of it, maybe forgotten because of the, the name, but I think it's worth a look. I think it's worth a play. And this is a game I will probably pick up because of the size and because of the, the cost um, from those choices. So the base version of this game costs 30 bucks. You can get a little add-on to hold these different sculpts and all the cubes and the little production trackers for another, I think it's 15 bucks, somewhere in that range. So if you want the fully deluxified thing, 45 bucks, you totally don't need the ships, the, the individual ships, because they're just basically another resource in this game. I think the production here, I, you have to put it in a context that it comes in this, I don't know, three inch by six inch box and you get an explosion of decisions and gameplay. I think it's fantastic. All of decisions you get to make that fit in this portable box that would fit in a pocket of my cargo shorts. Yes, I wear cargo <laughs> shorts. I'm an adult. I don't care. I, Dave, Chris, don't give him a thumbs up for that. What are you doing, dude? I wear nothing but cargo don't shorts. Promote that, don't promote that behavior. Cargo shorts. That's where it's at. Thank you so much. Yeah, you guys nailed it with the card art. I raved about it before on the last week's episode. All the aliens are cool, and they all have these quirky little looks to them. A lot of them do. And some of them, there's like a giant cat. There's a guy with a smug little face. There's your foreboding aliens. You got all kinds of variety. There's your tree looking at. So there's your generic tropes. And there's some interesting novel ones, this sea life one with some cellular structure going on inside there. Just some incredibly fun card artwork. You're going to get a gameplay. I got some sort of similar to Race for the Galaxy, where you're building up a tableau, you're getting these amazing combinations to exploit specific actions. 
for everything that's in this game in a tiny little box, I think the production is just fantastic. Would it benefit from a bigger thing? I don't know, Tim. I think what you have here is basically a card game with some some tracking. And that's how I like to look at it. And I think it nails it perfectly for the size and the ships and everything that comes in here. I keep saying the same thing over and over. Very happy with the production and the sci-fi theme of this one. So two points I want to make, um, both of which are quasi-complaints. One is that Unlike Tim, I did not get the iconography very quickly. I found myself struggling a bit with that. There's like five different flavors of arrow in this game, all of which do something slightly different. So I had a little bit of trouble following that. I think that I'd get it after a game or two, but I definitely found the iconography a little bit difficult to to get on the, certainly on the first play. I think it'd probably get better, but it was a little bit frustrating. The other thing is I do feel like 4X games are supposed to feel bigger. And I I struggle with this because I get everything you guys are saying. Tiny box, stick it in your pocket, bust it out at your friend's house and play a one-hour game. That's just not usually what I look for in a 4X game. And I think that's what I'm struggling with a little bit. I mean, you could almost have taken this game and made it completely abstract. You know, instead of ships, we have little circles. And instead of, you know, I mean, basically, that's what the resources were. They were green triangles and purple squares and things like that, which I think it hurt the game a little bit from a thematic standpoint. I think the characters, I think that the race is made up for some of that. So I think that that was the place where you kind of brought your, your theme back into it. I, I just, I found my, hold, hold on. Oh, yeah. in, e- what? in Eclipse, you have, you have the brown planets and you have the gold planets and you have the pink planets in Eclipse. Isn't that exactly what we have here? It is, but everything about, that other, I mean, yes, okay, you're right. The, the pictures of the planets on the cards are probably of equal quality to the drawings of planets on the hexes in Eclipse. But you're surrounding these with green triangles and purple squares. And in Eclipse, you're surrounding them with just an explosion of exciting things to look at. That's a huge difference. No. No. no, I agree with Adam on this. I, I agree with Adam on this. Like literally I was thinking of this versus Eclipse and what you get in this little packet is an amazingly thematic experience. Like Adam compared it to Race for the Galaxy. And the problem with Race for the Galaxy is that other than the art, it is just symbols. It's just iconography. Mm-hmm. This game had so many thematic actions you could take. It had the council, it had the trading action, it had the exploration, it had developing, your, you could colonize a planet, but then you could develop the planet. And you get, of course you get prestige for having a established, developed planet, but you also get these other benefits. You, like this game is very thematic for what you're getting here. And I don't feel, other than the building the ships, it's basically the same thematic level as Eclipse's, in my opinion. I think that this game did an amazing job of taking this small production and much more streamlined, much more streamlined gameplay and, and length of time um, to, in, in, you know, and give it this whole 4X package. And I think Adam said it right last week, you know, when we talked about this game and I asked him, like, would you play this over Eclipse? I don't think that's the right question to ask. Yeah, they're both 4X games, but you don't always have three to four hours to sit down and play Eclipse. And you don't always want to be like, like lose the game after three hours because of a dice roll. Sometimes you want to sit down and play a fun little game in an hour, but have a similar theme on it. And this game 
fits that niche really well. I didn't feel it was abstract at all. Like there's like in this little tiny game, there's like five different resources you're managing plus a production track. It's amazing. Nine different actions you can take on your turn. Like there are so many thematic things going on here. It is very sandboxy to me. I I don't agree with your take on that, Chris, at all. What do you have to say about that? I mean, other than the fact that you're just dead ass wrong. (laughs) No, and I'm not saying this to, to be, you know, a hot take on it, but I honestly, all that stuff you just said, I didn't feel any of that. I just, I, I felt like I moved to this space, I get a purple square. This space, I get a green triangle. And and none of that to me, I mean, I spend a purple triangle and now I get four, what we were calling points, and Steve kept correcting us, they're not actually points, they're prestige. <laughs> right, I, I mean, that's the thing. I, right? I just, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, hey, this is different strokes for different folks, right? I just, I did not get any of that theme coming through with the exception of the race cards which I thought actually did did help, and it gave it a little bit of theme that it did have. And that's just, yeah, I, I mean, I tried. I, I really tried to make myself feel like I was in this universe, and I just couldn't do it. So in the clips where you got the gold cube, which is money, and the pink cube, which is research, and the brown cube, which is construction, that's that that works better Come for on. you? Come on. Come <laughs> on. You know, you know it's an entirely different thing that you're looking... When you're sitting there with this giant galaxy laid out in front of you, see size. It's and it's yeah no, and and that was kind of my point before is that size does matter when it comes to a four X game. Because I mean, when I look at this, I think yeah, there's a niche here. I'm just not sure it's a niche I need to fill. I'm not sure I need an hour long four X game. But I mean, I'm kind of bleeding over now into final takes on it, and my final take actually is probably a little bit different. Well, just jump into it, Chris. Well. I want to play this game again. I actually do want to play this game again because I hear what you guys are saying and I don't disagree except for the fact that I did not get the visceral experience of the theme in this game. I don't disagree with anything you guys are saying. It just didn't strike me as that exciting. But there's a lot of decisions to be made. I feel, I mean, I stumbled terribly through this game. It was one of those, kind of like Tim with Barrage last week, where I'm like getting, making these decisions that are getting me crushed. And, and that's, you know, but I could also see that that was because I just wasn't playing it well. And so I'm really interested to try to get in for a game number two and see if I can put a game together that actually makes sense. And then maybe it's game three, four, maybe game five, when you start getting into that question of, does this get really samey and does it start feeling like it's a puzzle that can be solved easily or not? And I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe after you know game two of this, even if I don't love the thematic implementation, maybe I'll just like the puzzle. I don't know, but I do want to give it another try. Yeah, well, for me, I definitely want to play this game again. And in fact, I think I'm going to pick it up. I think for this, the cost, and this again, that's I'm going back to the production here, is that like even though I think it would be more fun and more interesting in a better production if it was larger, I think because of the price point, $25 to $30, I'm sure once it's in retail, and it's a no-brainer for me. This is a lot of game in here for $25 to $30, bucks, a small box. I appreciate a small box. This is probably smaller than I want because you sacrifice on some of the component size and the readability and usability of it. But the price point makes up for it. And so I'm going to pick this up. I'm going to play it some solo. I'm going to bust this out when I got like somebody in town who's not a huge gamer. who I'm like, hey, you want a really cool epic experience? I'm going to teach it to you in 15 minutes. And we're going to play a fun game in an hour, hour and a half. I was shocked to see this on um, Board Game Geek listed as a 3.0 complexity rating. 
because it doesn't feel like a 3.0. It feels simpler to me. It feels like a 375 or something or 275 or something like that. Um, so, so to me, I, yeah, there's some iconography to, to explore here. A lot of actions, probably the teach is probably a little heavier than I think it's going to be, but playing it is so simple and it goes so quick and it's so streamlined. I can't wait to play this game again. I want to pick it up. I want to play it some more. Um, and I think it's ripe for expansion too. You, release a booster pack of 15 cards with new civilizations and the game is like all of a sudden brand new uh new variety and stuff like that um so this is this is a cool game it's a cool system i'm i i liked it a lot more than the tiny epic galaxies game which was an interesting enough game on its own but i think this for the same size box is a much bigger game a much more epic game and i'm looking forward to playing it some more it's a great game really fun so i want to respond to a few things you said Tim I'll probably forget like half of them by the time I get to them but yeah I picked this game up on a whim on Kickstarter I saw some little spaceships flying around in a tiny box and I thought the art was great and then I saw some of the mechanisms and I thought hey you know what that sounds pretty cool what have I got to lose for a 30 45 50 bucks whatever I end up spending on it for the game the deluxe thing and shipping and I was so delightfully charmed when I opened this thing up and started playing and started seeing how the game worked. You guys say bigger is better. I think the small box here is a feature and not a letdown. Yes, you do sacrifice some of that 4X bigness of spaceships and sprawling galaxy. But you know what? I still think that those five galaxy cards going across the table flipping them over and revealing these new planets a couple little exploration tokens here and there gives me a nice little sense of exploring this expanding galaxy i like the economy here i like the everything you need to do with the cards i thoroughly enjoyed all the decisions that are here in this tiny box in a two-player game you might be able to get this down to like half an hour it's going to be so quick you can run it back a couple times and just create these insane little thinky combos you nailed it with talking about how ripe this game is for expansions you can get these new little factions i think you could get some new trade cards up there too tim right now i think there's only five different trade cards so you're going to see a lot of those if you're using three trade cards every game and you know add another five add another ten get all kinds of different actions going on up there i would absolutely request to play this one again i own it i wasn't sure what I was going to think when I opened it up. I wasn't expecting much. I was expecting to just be like, oh, uh, this game's going to go straight to the trade pile, or who am I going to give this game away to? Something like that. But no, I want to keep it. I want to keep playing it. Uh, such a good time here playing Age of Galaxy. What a horrible name, but what a fun game. All right. Well, that'll wrap up the conversation on Age of Galaxy. So let's jump over to some games that have been on our table and some future takes right after this. All right, welcome back. Adam, I'm going to start with you. What have you been playing this week? This week, I received a gift from my stepdaughter, a game called Planted, a game of nature and nurture. This is by Phil Walker Harding. The publisher here is Buffalo Games. They make a lot of like jigsaw puzzles and stuff. Apparently, they started to make games too. And she saw this one at Target. A couple things to say here. I know I'm officially old now because I love houseplants. 
Why do I like them so much? I can actually see them developing and growing. I think it was when I was a kid, I didn't care. I could just run by them and there's a house plant. It looks the same as it did yesterday. But now I'm like old and time seems to whiz by. I can actually like see these plants growing day to day and new stuff's happening. So what's this game all about? Well, you're making a little shelf, a little area of these beautiful house plants. It's a drafting game. Each round, you're going to get eight cards, six of which are going to be um, what are they called? resource cards, and two of which are either going to be tools or some in-game bonuses. So you're looking at these uh, rounds, what, one and three, you're going to pass left. So if there's three or four players going around, you know, that initial hand you started out with, it's going to go around the table. You might see four of those cards again when it comes back to you, depending on how many players. If I've just played this one at two, so we're just going back and forth and back and forth. You can look right over at your opponent's board and be like, oh, you need this card. I am not going to give this one to you. So there's a little bit of opportunity for hate drafting. You know, the resources that are going to be super valuable that round. Also, you have a market row of the different type of house plants that you want to purchase. So instead of using a card for the resources, you can just play it upside down and say, nursery is what it says in the rules. And you go up there and you pick one of these house plants to add to your little nursery that you're gonna build, up to six plants. So you're trying to feed these plants every round by using these resources. The tools will kind of help your engine out. So maybe one of the tools will be like, get an extra water every time you play a single water card. So boom, you have a little tableau going. It's quick, it's snappy. After four rounds of doing this draft, basically how many times you've fed each type of plant, a little in-game bonus scoring, and that's it. It's a beautiful production. I don't know if you guys have looked. The water droplets are just, they look like beautiful little water, water drop. They stand up. There's little sun tokens. Also beautiful and chunky. Little spray bottles so you can you can water your plants with, with spray. And there's these little cute little green thumbs. You know, if you're new at planting, you're a green thumb. So those represent kind of a half of a wild, any half of a res half of any resource. So you got two of those to get one resource. A fun, quick light game by the same designer as Sushi Go. I had a blast playing this one. Again, wasn't expecting much, but there's some fun decisions. We can crank this one out. I think Sarah and I have finished this one in 15 to 20 minutes. We can get through one of these games and have a really good like thinky time for the amount of effort that you put into it. So that's Planted, a game of nature and nurture. Had a blast. So first of all, how freaking charming is it that you got this as a gift from your stepdaughter. I think that's wonderful, and I'm glad you're training her right, that that's what you get for somebody for a gift as you get them a game. What a, and what a charming-looking game this is. It looks really cute. Uh, talk about a very nice production, I mean, for a small game, um, since we're talking small games tonight. Just looking at the pictures, though, in the setup, it, it almost gives me some of the same impressions as Parks. Is that misleading or is this something that's actually there? This one plays, this one's very different. This one's just, it's almost pure drafting. So you're going to, you know, pick a card, pass, pick a card. We'll pick a card, play it, pass the rest of your cards. Um, there is a bit of resource gathering and converting that. So yeah, you are gathering resources during the course of the round like you are in parks. I think in parks you kind of exchange those in as you go. Here you get a whole group of resources and then at the end of playing those eight cards every round, that's when you convert them all 
and distribute them out. Oh, did I collect these efficiently and feed them in the precise exact way to uh, efficiently allocate all of these resources to the different plants? So that's kind of the puzzle here. Again, nothing astounding, nothing you probably haven't seen in some way, shape, or form in a lot of other games. But just it's just very simple, very streamlined, and nice and clean. I think Phil Walker Harding is like the master of family weight games. Like every one of his games that I've played, which are not at a level of complexity that I'm usually excited about or you know looking forward for a game night, uh, I always have fun with them though. So this is this is cool. I this was not even I didn't even know this game existed. So thanks for bringing it to my attention. Nice production too, and the fact that it's yeah. on Target, I bet. But it's a lot beautiful. of people are going to get the chance to play it. So very cool. I hope so. It's really fun. So this weekend has actually been a really big weekend for games for me. Uh, my wife and son are out of town. And on Saturday, a friend came over in the morning and we spent better part of the day playing games. And it was it was so much fun, especially I, I have learned, you know, Adam's talking about getting older and how you can watch plants grow. And that's entertaining. I have learned that anything is better if started in the morning. <laughs> because because then, <laughs> then you don't have a deadline and then you have to worry about getting tired and needing to go to bed. And so our games this Saturday were one tapestry, which was just I mean, this is a game I've been playing a lot recently, a lot on BGA, a lot in person. And it is just routinely a fun game every single time. That's why it was a number one on my list. So this is. Uh, just a constant joy for me. One thing that I thought was kind of amusing in this one was you talking about when you introduce somebody to a new game. This was my friend's first time playing Tapestry and ended up making it to space in era number two, which for anybody who's played Tapestry before, that is pretty doggone tough to do. So I feel like in the space race, I got absolutely crushed. The other game, going from civilization building to tiny epic games, we played Watergate. I know I've talked about this one before, but this is truly a game that stands out to me as almost unbelievably thematic in a tiny box with a simple set of rules. It has to do with the art. It has to do with the board. It has to do with all of these, the little flavor text on the cards the little evidence pieces, the way you put your evidence pieces out on the board to try to connect Nixon to the conspirators. Everything about this game is dripping with theme. And it's a tiny box, and you can play the game in, I don't know, a half an hour maybe. I've taught the game to people and finished a game in 20 minutes. And I routinely find that game just an absolute joy to play. So to me, that's a great example, since we're kind of on this topic tonight of those kind of games. Tons of theme, small space. It's a, it's a game that I highly recommend to anybody who hasn't played it before. The one trick of it is it's only a two-player game, so you better have one friend that you want to play it with. Uh, other than that, you're out of luck. And one last thing on Watergate, a very special shout-out to our listener, Caleb, who had heard that I wanted to get a copy of Watergate. He happened to have a copy that was laying around going unused and was kind enough to send it to me. So thank you, brother. I appreciate it. So thoughtful of you to share the love, man. Watergate, play it. It's fun. Hey, Chris, with your play of Tapestry, new first, first time play for somebody new, did you include the expansions or did you exclude them? 
excluded the expansions. I figured, you know, for an introductory game, I mean, personally, I feel like almost any time I play a game for the first time, I like to leave expansions out because I want to understand the base rules, the base concepts before I start jumping in and expanding things. And in particular with Tapestry, I think that it really is an easy change to make. Because once you've done, once you have the basics down, the expansions just give you more opportunities and more variations. So start with the simple variations, and then later on, if somebody likes the game, you start adding to it. I was going to ask Tim if he's going to get all the cards and stuff that will allow him to crush his daughter <laughs> as hard as he can. All right, well, I have had a, play, a game on my table recently. This is a game called Expedition to New Dale. This is an Alexander Pfister game published in 2019 by Lookout Games. You know, Alexander Pfister is an interesting designer for me because I, I really love Great Western Trail. But the other games I've played with him have been interesting, you know, interesting designs, but not games that I've really loved very much. And so I was interested to try Expedition to New Dale. I, I understand it's like a board game version of this card game called Oh My Goods, which I'd heard about for years. It's supposed to be a fun little kind of trading game. So I thought, let me give this one a shot. Found it 25 bucks on Game Nerds, the right amount to invest in experimenting with something. Expedition to New Dale has some interesting mechanisms. I'm not going to go into all of them, but I'll give you a couple quick samples. Um, the game starts where you have one card out in front of you it's a mine and it creates coal and you start with five little cubes on that card so a coal is worth one coin according to this card so you basically have five coins to spend and over the course of the round you have two action markers you can either try to produce more coal or you can take one of these other basic actions might give you more cards might let you get another action marker like kind of an extra worker or whatever but if you want to produce more coal, you have three options to do that. You put your marker on one of these little spots in front of your card. It costs you one less worker. Or it costs you exactly as many workers as the card requires, or it costs you two more. Each of the cards that you're going to get, including the starting coal card, has a number of workers of different colors it requires to produce. So the starting card requires two yellow workers and one red worker. So if you take the action in the middle, that is going to cost you exactly that number of workers. It's going to give you two cubes, which is like $2 if you're successful with it. But at the beginning of the round, a card got turned over and it's gonna show how many workers are gonna be available in that round to start. So there's four different colors workers, yellow, red, uh, blue, and green. And then you're gonna pull, after you've kind of chosen which actions you're gonna take, you're gonna pull some more workers out of a bag, four in most rounds, um, and then add those. So if there's one yellow, one red, one blue, and one green worker on the card to start with, and I want to produce coal, let's say that I want to produce two coal, I can take a stab at it, but it's going to take two yellow workers and one red worker. That means that at least one of the workers that gets drawn out of the bag after I've chosen this action has to be yellow. But I don't know for sure it is. Now the workers are different quantities, so you're kind of taking a risk. Like, yeah, yellows are pretty common. There's a good chance I'm going to be successful there. Well, maybe I even want to take a little bit more of a risk. If I can get two more of the colors that I need to be matched, I could get four cubes, $4 worth of resources instead of two. And so there's a little bit of a push your luck um, element to even take the actions you're going to take in this game. So that's kind of interesting. Um, now, what's basically happening is that after you've produced this money, at the end of every round, you're going to get to build a new building. And the buildings produce different types of goods that are going to have different costs and different worker costs and things like that. So you're kind of building this up over seven rounds. Then you can also, uh, for some of the goods, instead of just 
um, producing them with this with this action marker, you can trade in other goods for them. So if I've got coal, I could potentially turn coal into ore, and then ore I could potentially convert into bricks or something like that. So you can produce these action chains. So it's this um, interesting little economic Euro game that's very quick, plays over seven rounds. Each round takes about two minutes to play. So you could knock this out two player probably in 30 minutes. I played a lot of solo games in like 20, 25 minutes. Um, so it's quick, got some interesting choices. Here's the problems with it. Number one is that Alexander Fister relied on Clemens Franz to do the artwork again. So it feels like it was made in 2008. And the theme, which is the, the one thing about the game is that it's supposed to be a campaign game. So you start in the first game, there's a board out there. So when, as you're building buildings, you have these, some other mechanisms that let you get benefits for building out in different locations and stuff like that. And there's actually four different dual-sided boards in this game box. So you play over like 10 games. And as you go through the campaign, you'll get a different board out, might be slightly different. There's different mechanisms that change. There are also different cards that get added to the deck each round. So, you know, as you set up the game each game in the campaign, it says that, you know, add these other cards into the event deck or um, flip the board over and do this other thing. So it's supposed to change a little bit. The problem is that the, the theme of it is completely nonsensical and boring. There's no good story writing it at all. It's basically something dumb like, hey, you're going to go uh, trade to help support the troops to fight the frost giants. There's no frost giants in this game. You're trading coal and, and corn and and wheat and uh, you can bake bread in it, I guess. You can you can sell, you can make lumber. So there's no nothing interesting thematically. There's nothing interesting artistically. This is the driest of boring like productions of games you could possibly get. It is an interesting Euro game in a very short package, streamlined package. I think it's pretty heavy luck based. Um, there are games where I played it in the solo campaign where um, the first game, there was no way I could have ever won it. Like I just never got the good cards up that I needed to actually be successful. And then there were ones where it was super easy to, to play. And we're not super easy. It's always been a challenge. Um, but that's okay. You know, a, a kind of a solo game or a, even a cooperative game is always going to have some of those elements. I think playing this competitively would be a little bit more interesting because you're going for goals that will give you more points instead of like a win-lose condition like you do in the solo game. Uh, the game's fine. For 25 bucks. I think it was a good investment. I got some fun gameplay out of it. I'm in the fourth game of the 10-game campaign, and I had to play a couple of the rounds over again because if you lose, you're supposed to play it over again. Um, I don't know if I'm going to continue it. I don't think it's interesting enough to keep going back to. I think there are many more games I'd rather have on my table than this. So that's Expedition to Newdale. Interesting little experiment. Would probably be fun with more players, but this is not going to be a hit with the people that I usually play with around here. So I'm not going to even try it multiplayer. And I thought about like what I bring into BGHTCon. Hell no. There's so many more fun games we're going to be playing that weekend than Expedition to Newdale. So that's my take on Expedition to Newdale by Alexander Fister and Lookout Games. So Tim, this was just a oh look at this game here alexander fister recognize that name i'll give it a shot and see how it goes because why not 25 bucks who cares well it was it was actually a game that i'd heard about on a couple podcasts and it didn't get a lot of attention but i was actually intrigued by it it's a game i've had my eye on for a while it's like a 40 dollar game so when i saw it pop up for 25 bucks i'm like yeah i wanted to try that game one of the reasons i wanted to try it mainly the campaign elements which he, he also did something similar in Maracaibo, and I thought that was really clever. He added campaign elements to a campaign game, and I think they worked. And I think they worked here. I think adding campaign elements to a campaign game is or to a, to a Euro game is fantastic. It's a fun idea. Um, it's just like 
it, the, the theme on both of these games are so dry. The art, the, you know, the artistic representation is so dry. It's like, if you're going to have a campaign, tell a story, make it fun. Clank Acquisitions Incorporated Legacy is a great example of having a fun story to go along with a campaign game. Expedition to Newdale did not succeed. Which makes me so sad. I mean, when you started talking about this, I pulled up the pictures on BGG of it. And I mean, I was instantly intrigued. The game is called Expedition to Newdale. Hmm, okay, that sounds kind of interesting. The front picture on the box is this really kind of evocative. I don't even know what it is. I can't tell if that's a a person in a flowing robe walking away from you and you don't see their face and the wind is blowing their robe back or if it's some kind of a ghoul with glowing eyes and an invisible face like a weird little Jawa. But it's like, it just looks so interesting and I'm just like dying to know what's inside this box. And then I look at the next picture and it shows what's inside the box. And it's like this really crummy looking <laughs> map and some sorry pieces. I mean, what do you call those? Like where you just have like the little like sorry, you know, the, the not a meeple. No, not even the pawns, like pawns. The pawns, yeah. They're like these yeah. we, these little plastic pawns. And I'm like, wow, this just looks the opposite of interesting to me. There's no plastic pawns in here, Chris. What you're probably looking at is they're actually little uh, wooden colored meeples that are different colors, but they're kind of sh- in a shape of a pawn. So not exactly okay. sorry pawns, but yeah, not too far off. And the, the cloaked figure, I think, is supposed to be one of the types of characters you can hire. Comes up later in the campaign. I haven't seen them. But again, that's what I mean, like the promise of a campaign game there. And they show you this hooded figure and they insert like you're going to fight the, the frost giants in the first story. But the next four story elements that you read are like, well, you finished that combat. Why don't you trade some corn with the locals? Like that's about the element of story that you get here. And it just throws out a bunch of like random enemies. Like you just traded corn with John McAvoy from the Newdale clan. And that's about it. Like that's the level of story you get. So there's nothing interesting or evocative about where the campaign goes, where the story goes, where the production goes. You know, I'm four, four out of 10 in, but I've seen the other components and maps and it doesn't really change. Uh, too much from here. So listen, it's a fine little Euro game. And and the the one thing that I think it really does well is that I can knock out a solo Euro game in about 25 minutes here. But uh, it's not quite interesting enough, I think, for me to keep going back to. Thanks for nothing, Alexander Fister. But Chris, remember, Jawas walk shingle file to hide their numbers. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I think that'll wrap up on our table. Chris, you had something... uh, Something you want to look at into the future here. Like, let, let's bust out that crystal ball and take a future take. Yeah, future take. Well, this is not strictly a future take because that's supposed to be things that are on the horizon. And this one's actually sitting on my table right now. But I just recently got the very recently released wildlife expansion to parks. And there's a few reasons why I think that's great. Because for one, parks is at the same time one of my favorite games of all time. One of the first games that I ever backed on Kickstarter, one of the most beautiful out-of-the-box productions of any game out there, and it's a game that is desperately in need of expansion content, because it is definitely one of those games where after you play the base game a few times, it starts to feel a little bit repetitive. But then the Nightfall expansion came out, and that really livened it back up again. And now we've got the Wildlife expansion. I haven't played it yet, so it is still a future take to me, but I'm looking forward to getting this one on the table. It adds some new content 
in the sense that it has some new parks, it has some new equipment cards, it has some uh, some new, basically new cards that it adds into the to the box, adds some new wildlife. And the reason why they call it the wildlife expansion is because it makes a lot more use of the wildlife as a specific thing, more so than the other two versions of the game. Basically, in the base game and the Nightfall expansion, the wildlife serves as a wild. So you have these various resources and the animals are wild. The animals are wild, get it? So in this game, you actually have specific things that you have to have wildlife for. And there's different opportunities to get wildlife that are included in the new cards. And I didn't see much about this, but apparently there's this roving buffalo that goes around and gives you opportunities to get uh, to get wildlife too. So it's basically just another way to add a little bit more variety to the game for a game that really needs it, but is delightful when you have enough variety in there to, to make it you know, entertaining. So I'm super excited to play this one, and it's fun even just to look at it. Yeah, this is this is great. I mean, Parks is, again, it's kind of a family weight game, so it doesn't come out a lot, but it's always fun when I do get a chance to play it. It's great to introduce new people, too. I thought the Nightfall expansion actually did gamify it a little bit more, made it a little bit more complex to a level where I probably wouldn't even introduce it to newer, newer gamers uh, with it. I'm hoping that the Wildlife uh, expansion can just fit right in there and just add a little bit more. But the one thing that got me really excited about the Wildlife expansion I see is that there are new trail uh, tiles so that it will add some variety to the tiles that are going to come up each game, which not that it became boring because they came up in different orders and you had different things you were going for. But I think just having some variety, it's going to add a lot of uh, freshness to the, to the formula on this game. So I'll probably pick it up. Here's one reason I'm, I'm hesitant though. I was able to fit the Nightfall expansion in my parks box and still keep that amazing little tray, you know, the, the, the game trays, the tree stump, the game tray, thing and all the tree stump the token holders oh, yeah. and everything and i know that if i get one more expansion then i'm gonna have to throw out that plastic tray i'll probably try to keep the tree stump token holders but i'm gonna have to get rid of that base plastic tray and put stuff in baggies and stuff like that so oh, that's 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 rough but i'll probably try picking this up at some point let me know how it coming goes, soon the park's big box yeah, 75 dollars exactly. at a store near you <laughs> Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, I think that'll wrap up this episode. If you enjoy this show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at BG underscore Hot Takes or at Facebook at Board Game Hot Takes. Uh, we love chatting with our listeners and friends on these social media platforms and talking about the games we've been playing and being told why we're wrong and we had the wrong perception on them. But also, uh, it's also fun to hear when you guys buy a new game because you heard how enthusiastic we were about it. So. Thanks for listening. Until next week, take care, everybody. Good night, all. Bye-bye.